Amen. Well, y'all, we're going to keep on with our study in Hebrews. So if y'all would, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I sent out a text out, uh, on our little group text, just kind of letting you know where we're heading. I don't think it'll be that hard to keep up with it. We're going <laughs> verse by verse through Hebrews. So, um, last week, we kind of gave a little more detail, you know, with the introduction and everything. But uh, we'll start covering more. But honestly, y'all, uh, any time in this, because this can take a while to go through the book of Hebrews, but any time through this, uh, you know, if the Lord leads us to do something else, to take a break in the middle of it, we can do that and go back to our study in Hebrews anytime we want. But for now, I just think it's a wonderful way to start uh, talking about the Lord. You know, Hebrews talks about the Lord and everything in Jesus Christ is better. Remember, that's kind of our theme. I know I'll say it a lot. You get sick of hearing it. But we're, as we go through the book, we're going to look at how is he better? In what ways is Jesus Christ better? And it's not a belittling. I stressed this last week, too. It's not a belittling of those things that are behind. It's just a perfection that came through Jesus Christ. The long-awaited Messiah finally came. And so to go back, as the Bible puts it, to the weak and beggarly elements of the law or something like this would be, would be foolish. And remember, we, we said the audience, I know that the Holy Ghost wrote the book of Hebrews. He wrote it to us, okay? I believe Paul's the author. Uh, most Bible scholars believe it is. It's not definitive. It doesn't really matter. We know the Lord gave it to us because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And all of it is profitable for the man of God to be matured or brought to that place of maturity, Okay? And so we're studying the book of Hebrews, and who can remember, we're, we're a little bit uh, informal here, who can remember uh, what, what was the condition of these Hebrew believers? In other words, what, what were they needing that this epistle would help impart to them or provide them? Yeah, encouragement. I may even need encouragement, okay? And we're here tonight. Uh, the Bible says later in Hebrews, we'll get to it in chapter 10, about provoking one another to loving good works. Well, this epistle is to provoke us, and it was written originally, uh, to provoke the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians. And remember, most of the early church was Jewish Christians. Not entirely, but the early church was. Salvation is of the Jews, is first to the Jew, and then, then to the Gentile. Jesus Christ in his ancestral Lineage as part of God's plan was born uh, in the Jewish race. He was a child of Abraham in that line. He was a child of David. And actually on both sides of his family, Mary and Joseph's side, you look at one of the genealogies in Matthew 1 and 1 in Luke, and it gives, you know, the, both sides of it. And it talks about him being you know, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and so forth. So that's important to the Lord because God is a God of order. And he does things with purpose and he does things decently and in order. And salvation was promised to the Jews. He would be a light to the Gentiles and the Savior of the whole world. But he came through the Jewish people. So he couldn't be mistaken. Dave Hunt used to talk about all those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. They pointed to one man and one man only. And he said it was like his address in all of eternity 
it spoke of this one man that lived at one specific point of time, born in one village. You know what I mean? Everything pointed and zeroed in because it was too important to miss him, to think, well, maybe that's the Savior. Maybe that's the Savior. No, he hadn't come yet or whatever. And so uh, Christ is very uh, unique and very distinguished. He's the eternal Son. He did not just come into being or to existence 2,000 years ago in a manger. I know we know that. He is the eternal Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's a trinity that we believe in and we, we worship and the God in uh, the Bible teaches us. So if you would turn to Hebrews 1 and mark it, and then keep that mark and turn to Matthew chapter 5. <coughs> All right, Hebrews 1, where we'll go in just a second, but we're going to read a scripture, very familiar scripture from the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and Jesus said, blessed are ye, he talked about all the different blessed are the poor in spirit and so forth, and now he gets here and he says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my, my sake, rejoice. And be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Again, when we're going through trials, and I believe we all are, we're all going through similar things right now, at least in part. And uh, it's difficult. We're not feeling sorry for ourselves. We're not having a pity party like poor me. I'm thankful for what the Lord's done. I'm thankful for what the Lord's doing. But there, there is some heartache. There is some pain involved in that. And I believe that it's, it's a persecution, so to speak, when people have said evil against us falsely for his name's sake. I mean, I've done plenty of things that bad enough and, and enough that people could just speak the truth about me and it would have been, uh, you know, they'd have been right on target. But... He says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute, and persecute you and say all manner uh, you know, things against you falsely for my sake. And he says, rejoice. That's what the prophets went through. You know, there's a reward for that. He said, you're, you're exceeding, be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. And so we're not patting ourselves on the back. It's just where we are. It's just what we're going through. And honestly, y'all, when you live for Jesus whether it's on the campus of Southeastern or in your workplace or wherever it is, there is going to be a persecution that comes against your life and my life and any believer. You know, we're talking about Christians in North Korea right before it started and, and these other places. They're not choosing the persecution. They're choosing Christ. And in so doing, there's a persecution that comes with it. And that's why uh, we, we don't have to go looking for trouble, so to speak. And we don't get some extra badge if we stir up a lot of trouble and then people get mad at us and persecute us and we say, well, I'm just bearing my cross, you know. It's just we live for God in the midst of a world that doesn't know God. The God of this world with a little g is Satan. And he is opposed to you and me. In everything of the Lord, he is going to spend his time doing nothing else but coming against us. So we don't have to look for trouble. We don't run from it either. We just live for God. Okay, and these Hebrew Christians were living for God. You can turn back to chapter one. They're living for God, and we talked about it, so I won't rehash it all. But they were persecuted on, in basically, in two arenas. 
They were persecuted by their Jewish uh, family, friends, society that rejected them because they put their faith in Jesus, right? Because the Jews said, crucify him. We don't want this man to rule over us. His blood be upon us and our children. So they rejected him. John says he came to his own. His own received him not. That's the Jewish people. Some Jews did. The early church was primarily Jews. But as a whole, they said, that's not our Messiah. That's not him. And they rejected him. So they were being persecuted. Uh, there's a cost involved in serving God. Okay? Look at it ahead of time. So you're not surprised about it when it comes. Okay? Look at it ahead of time. If you take a stand for the Lord at work or in your family at the family Christmas party or whatever it may be, where maybe a lot of people aren't saved around you, as God would lead you, you take a stand. You need to count it, and so do I count it beforehand. So that we're not just, oh my goodness, I got persecuted. What am I going to do? They laughed at me. They ridiculed me in the workplace. They looked, they bypassed me when it was time for a promotion in my job and they gave it to somebody who's been working 10 years less than I have. Uh, but it goes with the territory. Now, God can cause us to find favor like he did Joseph as well. But typically, we're going to be persecuted. These, these Christians, they were born again people, were needing encouragement. They were being persecuted by their Jewish brothers and persecuted by the Roman. So that would just represent the world, Okay. A worldly world at that time where they had pagan gods and even Caesar was worshipped as God and the, the Jews were being, I mean, uh, uh, the, the Christians were being persecuted on both fronts. And so we talked about it. And, and in the verse, first verse, and we're not going to go over all of it again, but it says that God spoke in times past, I'm paraphrasing, by the prophets, various ways, various times by the prophets. But in these last days, and that's the day in which there was, this was written. And that's the day in which we're living. These last days. Okay. Uh, he's spoken unto us by his son. We don't have to look for the latest, greatest new revelation. And add a book to the end of the Bible after revelation. And say we've got this new prophecy. Might change something or might confirm something. We don't need anything to confirm this. We have the Holy Ghost. And we have Genesis to Revelation. God is able to give to men... The word he wants to give. He's able to give the word and communicate himself, his plan of salvation, his plans for the future, how a believer is to live, how does a lost man get saved. He has able to communicate all that in this word right here. And the Holy Spirit makes sense of it. And the Holy Spirit gives us understanding to where in our hearts we're reading it now and we're saying yes, yay, and amen, and amen, and amen. That is what the Holy Spirit does. And so... But the Lord spoke to us uh, by His Son. He made all things. He upholds all things. He's the, uh, and he, it says that uh, he, for, at the end of verse 3, this is where we ended last week, whom He had, uh, by, when He by Himself had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Purging means, means to be a cleansing, okay, a purifying he purified us from our sins. He finished it. There's not an additional work that needs to be done for our salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, to break the power of sins. It's all been done, okay? It's finished by the Lord. And because it was, He finished it, He sat down forever 
in that place of authority we talked about the right hand of the Father. He's not going to run back and, oh, I've got you know, three more things I have to do to finish up. It's not that God's not still working, but He finished what He came to do at this first coming. And in Acts chapter 1, when the, the apostles are watching Him go up in the clouds, you know, to, to basically His um, being ascended back to the Father, they said the same Jesus is coming back again in like manner as you've seen Him go. So He'll come again for the second time, and we'll talk about it more in Hebrews, later in some of these chapters, but he's coming back for a different purpose. He's coming back to reign and rule on this earth, and to reign and rule will be reign and rule, and with him all the saints of God, and so forth. But, that's pretty much what we talked about last week. We're going to try to cover, it's not a long chapter, and there's one thought through the end of this chapter. So I want to read 4 through 7 right now, and we'll talk about it. So this is still speaking about Jesus, okay? Being made so much better, it says, than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of, of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So there was the, the Jewish people, and I've just read this in some concordances, had a great respect, I guess you'd say, for angels. That was a big part, and we might talk about it a little bit later, but that was them, angels were important to him. The, the, the uh, archangel Michael is, is mentioned as being basically the the protector or the prince of Israel. That's like their angel for their nation. I'm not saying there's not others that fall under Michael's command, okay, because there's a hierarchy. But he's mentioned Gabriel, of course. He spoke to Daniel. He spoke to uh, Mary. He spoke to Joseph and others in the Bible. So for, for, the, for the comparison to be made in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, okay, so much better than the angels. This would encourage them. It would teach them, but it would also encourage them. A lot of times, y'all, we, we, we hear things that we know. It's not that we didn't know them. It's that we're reminded of them. You know? And doesn't Peter say that we're to stir up our minds, you know, in way of remembrance, basically, of these things? You don't. We don't get tired of it. If we study Hebrews again a year from now, it will be okay. You know what I mean? It's like, because the Lord continues to speak to us. But... Uh, I want to just talk about this a little bit, the name, when it talks about being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And we sing songs about the name of Jesus. The name of the Lord is a strong power. The righteous run into it and they're safe. Um, all through the Bible, we read about it. And what does the name represent? In other words, Randy, I don't even know what it means, okay? Uh, names have meanings, though, in the Bible. When we talk about the name, it has a more excellent name. What's the significance of that? Anybody know? What's, what's the big deal about a name? Yeah, it, it says something about the person. It says something about them. It has to do with authority, like... 
Joshua meaning like Savior, okay, and things like that. It, it meant something. And uh, Samuel, I think, means ask of God because, you know, his mother prayed for a child, a man-child, and received a child. And so his name is above every name, and that's what the Bible says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is from Philippians 2, 9 through 11, if you're taking notes. Because of who he is, uh, the Father has given him this name. He has a name that's above every name. And at the name of Jesus, think about it, every knee shall bow. That means people that are saved and people that are lost. That means demons that uh, were kicked out when Lucifer rebelled, the third of the angels. Okay, That means angels. That means created beings that we've never seen before. They're going to be in heaven. It means everybody, at the name of Jesus, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that he's Lord, whether things in earth, you know, heaven, earth, or under the earth even. And so um, Jesus, don't, he's not even worthy to be compared to these angels, I guess is the point. And he's ours, and he's our Lord, and he's our Savior, and he's our friend, and he's our God, and he's our deliverer, and he's our keeper that keeps us and watches over us. Um, the Bible also says when it comes to salvation, neither is there salvation in any other. You know the verse in, in Acts 4.12, Peter and John before the council and said, uh, for there's no other name under heaven, name, right? No other name under heaven given unto, among, unto men whereby we must be saved. And so we're saved by that name and no other. And if Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, Right? I'll give it. The Father will, will give it. And so forth. It's not just that we throw around the name J-E-S-U-S. Okay? And it, it has to do with uh, who He is, our relationship with Him, our confidence in Him, and our faith in Him, and our obedience, our submission to Him. And we are under that authority. You remember that, that Roman centurion who had a servant that was sick? And he says... Uh, Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. The Lord offers. And the man says, I'm not even worthy that you come under my roof. But uh, speak the word only. And he'll be healed. He goes, I'm a man under authority. I'm a centurion. I've got a hundred soldiers under me. And if I say to one, do it, they do it. And, and I recognize you, Lord, as being one of authority. Just speak the word only and he'll be healed. So I think we're talking about the name of Jesus. We're talking about that authority that comes with it. Uh, so it's not just throwing around the name. You know those seven sons of Sceva who, in, in Acts, I think, I forgot chapter, maybe 19. And they're talking about they're trying to cast out demons, right? We adjure you in the name of Jesus, by, you know, whom Paul preaches. And the demons ripped them to shreds, right? And said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? So it's more than just the name. Uh, it's the person. Is the authority that goes with it. And I'll give one more about that where Jesus said, And these, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. In my name they will cast out devils and speak the new tongues and so forth. Lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. There's three ways that, in, that as I was studying that Jesus obtained a name above all. Three, I guess, categories. One is by birth. 
okay, by birth. He was born of a virgin. He's the only begotten of the Father. So by his very birth, in one sense, we're all uh, the offspring of God. The Bible says that, but we're not, we're not all children of God. We're all created of God, but every human being is not uh, the, you know, the child of God. That's by that second birth. But Jesus, by his birth, being the only begotten of the Father. And the Bible says that uh, in Matthew, I'll just look at it real quickly. Matthew 121. Can't wait to get my new pulpit. Excuse me. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So by birth, he has a more excellent name. You can find other scriptures along that lines, but also by inheritance. And we, there's two verses here in Hebrews. In other words, uh, the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews 1-2, in these last days he spoke unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir, that's inheritance, an heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. And in verse 4, at the end it says, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so, and the Bible tells us that we are joint heirs with the Lord as well. We get to be part of that. Very kind, extremely kind of the Lord to let Amen. sinful created beings be, uh, we never become God, but he allows us to be partakers, says in Peter, of his divine nature. And he, he calls us heirs of all of these things that God has. I have just a couple of scriptures to go with that. And I want to look at them real quickly. Uh, Colossians 3.12. Tell you what, for time, can I look up Colossians 3.12? And uh, can somebody look up Romans 8.17 and read that when I'm through? I'm sorry, Colossians 1.12. And then Romans 8.17. Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Okay, so God the Father has done that for us through the new birth, through our faith in Jesus Christ, and made, it, made us part of that inheritance. Romans 8, 17. Does anybody have that? And the children and heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Okay, these scriptures are very clear. And very exciting too, very awesome to know. So the Lord obtained has a better name by birth, by inheritance, and lastly by his achievements or what he accomplished when he actually came to this earth. He earned a more excellent name. Okay? What did he do when he came? Well, he, he purchased our redemption on the cross. The just died for the unjust. And um, the Bible says that the, in that same passage from Philippians I quoted from earlier. It says, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. So he, he obtained a more excellent name by what he did that no man could ever do. All those wonderful prophets, and they were wonderful. And all those wonderful men of God that we admire and we should and we look up to in the Bible and women of God 
But Jesus did something that they never did nor could ever do. He died as the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins. He took it upon himself and bore it. And uh, Jesus said this in, in John chapter 5, verse 36. He says, For I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father had sent me. That's a good scripture. He's saying, the works bear witness of me. I mean, John the Baptist was a witness, right? Testifying of the coming of the Lord. But Jesus said, I even have a greater witness than that of John. The works that I do, that the Father sent me to do, that I'm finishing and have finished, they bear witness of me. So he's better than the angels in all of these ways. His name is better. God gave the name and the authority of Jesus above all these other created things. Okay? Uh, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And let's look at that in verse 5. We're back in Hebrews 1.5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son. Now that's quoted from the Psalms, uh, Psalm 2.7. If you want to look at it, you can, but that's where it came from. I, I, I don't dismiss things like that. I'm not saying that you do. But I think it's important when we see where it came from. You might not remember it, but the fact that it was quoted about beforehand, you know, one of the proofs, like Dave Hunt always says, that the Bible is, is true, that Christ is Lord, that everything about Israel is amazing and so forth, is the fulfilled prophecies. And so uh, Jesus fulfilled every prophecy that was written about it in the Old Testament. And there's just, there's one here. So which, which of the angels did the Lord ever say, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? It's a rhetorical question. He never said it to any of the angels, okay? He created them. And again, I will be to him, that's Christ, a father, and he shall be to me a son. Never said that to an angel. Never said it to an angel. Angels are powerful. There's a hierarchy. There's Michael and, and there's other angels, some you know, we don't know their names and all that. And they follow him with an order and they have a power and they're his ministers, the Bible says. They're not the Son of God. They're not the eternal God. They're created. And again, we keep reading. Verse 6, when, the, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he said, and let all the angels of God worship him. So he's telling angels to worship the Lord. You know, when Jesus was born in the, vir uh, you know, the Virgin Mary in, the, in, the, uh, in Bethlehem in the stable, and those shepherds were watching their flights by night, there was a chorus, a heavenly chorus, singing glory to God in the highest, right? Peace and, and on earth, and goodwill to men. These angels were worshiping the Lord. And worship is reserved for God alone. We don't really have time to read the scriptures, but if you want to write down a couple of scriptures about that uh, in Revelation uh, I'll run across it here in a minute worship is, is reserved for the Lord himself okay and so we, uh, Revelation 19.10 and 2 Samuel 7.14 and there's probably other scriptures as well but uh, again, angels are created, the Lord's uncreated. Now, I would just thought this was interesting to add into our study. Does anybody know much about Jehovah's Witnesses and what they believe? 
2 Samuel 7.14 and Revelation 19.10. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was actually Michael the Archangel taking on the form of Jesus at that particular time. And died on the cross and then he was raised again like as Michael the Archangel. It's a weird, very weird belief. It's not biblical and we don't worship angels, you know, but we do worship the Lord. And uh, I just wanted to read this. Um, um, Michael, they, 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 Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, but that's not at all biblical and not at all scriptural. But uh, I just want to read this scripture here. From this, this is Dave Hunt. This is the last Korean call that I just got. And somebody asked the question, is there any truth to the idea that Michael the Archangel is just another name for the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no. Hebrews 1, which we're studying, uh, speaking of the Son, specifically contrasts Jesus with the angels and bluntly asks to which of the angels at any times did he said, sit, sit on my right hand till I make my, thine enemies thy footstool. Um, all the angels, that includes Michael, are part of the works of God's hands. They're part of the of creation. And, uh, and Jesus is uncreated, just like we've been talking about. When the Father brought forth His only begotten Son of the world, He said, let all the angels of God worship Him. And so, that's not a... Uh, if you're going by the Bible, that's why they have to have their own translation of the Bible, the Watchtower Society. And uh, anyway, we understand that the Lord is greater than angels. And let's keep reading. We'll just read through the end of the chapter because it's all one thought. Pick up in verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever. So listen, this is important. Unto the Son he saith. So here's what God says to his Son, Jesus. Thy throne, O God. He calls him God right here. Okay, these, this is good to know. You know the Mormons come knocking at your door, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or you hear people say, Jesus, or the Muslim, Jesus wasn't God, um, or the Bible never even says he was God. It does. It's all over the place. You know, and uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. That's very clear. Uh, thy, he says, unto the Son, he said, thy throne... O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth the garment. And as a vesture, thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? So again, comparison to angels. And it talks about Jesus Christ having a scepter of righteousness. He has a throne. He has a kingdom. He has a dominion. Angels don't have that. They don't have thrones or kingdoms or dominions or a scepter of righteousness in their hand. They're servants of the Lord. They're important. They're not to be ridiculed or mocked or belittled. But they're not the Lord. Okay? And they ought not be even compared to the Lord. And he says, your kingdom, uh, 
And that scepter is a symbol of government. It's a symbol of power. You know, you've seen them like the king holds out this staff, basically. It's probably very ornate. But really, it's representative of power and government and authority. And how long is his? Forever and ever. That's how long his kingdom is. You know, when Daniel talks about the prophetically of those four kingdoms that would come, Greece and I mean, Greece and uh, uh, Medo-Persian, Babylon and Greece and Rome. And then he says there's a kingdom that's going to come that's going to basically crush all of those. And it's going to be an eternal kingdom and an everlasting dominion. That's the Lord. And Jesus is addressed as God. Uh, the scriptures where those are quoted from the Old Testament, if you want to know them, Psalm 97 verse 2, Psalm 45 verse 6. And where he says, you have loved righteousness and hate hated iniquity and y'all we don't have too much more to cover tonight but that is important to me it might be a little off of our comparison to angels but you know but i think it's worth noting that is a characteristic of a righteous judge we all hear about unrighteous judges or a judge that might take a bribe or a little money on the side or show favoritism because it's their nephew or something like this even the best of judges might have a little partiality and they maybe they can't help it it's just in their humanity okay but the lord is a righteous judge and it says that he loves righteousness and hates iniquity iniquity is lawlessness or violation of the law or illegality and it's a character of a just ruler and we've all had presidents probably that we have liked and presidents we dislike for different reasons. But none of them have been perfect. When the Lord comes, he's going he's gonna to judge rightly and righteously. That is, righteousness and truth are the foundation of your throne. That's what it's established upon. The throne sits on that. Righteousness and truth. Hallelujah. And we're going to be part of that kingdom. And... and uh, Peter said in, in 1 Peter, I think, chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, when he says that uh, that Jesus, when he was reviled, he didn't revile again, you know. He, he committed himself to him who judges righteously or rightly. In other words, he just, Lord, they're going to say what they want. Pilate's going to say what he wants. The Jews are going to blaspheme and say what they want. They're going to spit upon me. But I'm committing my hands to the righteous judge because when the, ju the dust all settles, that's the one that's going to be standing. That's the judgment that's going to stand. The one that he's pronounced over your life. We're righteous in Christ by faith. And, uh, and you know, even the works we've done or haven't done and so forth, God will judge that rightly. He's not going to miss. He's not going to forget something. He's not going to overlook something. He's not going to judge it rightly or make a poor or, you know, unrighteous judgment on anything. That's the foundation of his throne. And it says uh, that God the Father has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Again, that's just talking about a supremacy of Christ being supreme over everything else. There's no one else or nothing else that compares. And uh, when it calls him God in verse 10, which we mentioned, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens for the works of thy hands. It said in verse 80, called him God, okay? That word God is Jehovah. That's actually that word. So the Father calls the Son God, and that word God is Jehovah. 
I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, we're not believing some fairy tale or just believing something we want to believe. We're believing the truth from God's Word. Last, last couple of thoughts, y'all, for tonight. When he talks about how the earth is going to be changed, he says, uh, we laid the foundations, verse 10, of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish. What's going to perish? The earth and the heavens, which are the works of thine hands, they're going to perish. But thou remainest. You're going to still remain. They shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up. I'm going to give you that scripture in a minute. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Again, this is awesome. This is speaking of eternity. This is why later in Hebrews, we get to chapter 11, that there's a group of believers, that nameless believers that we don't even know in years past, of whom the world was not worthy, the Bible says. And they esteemed, like Moses, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. They, they looked for a city who had foundations whose builder and maker was God. They declare plainly that they seek a country, country and they embrace those promises and they cling to them and they hold to them. They're persuaded of them by faith. We'll get to all that later. Why? Because this is all going to perish. Some were sawn asunder and beheaded and lived destitute and sheepskins and all that. And at the time it was miserable. Okay? But there was the eternity in their hearts that God had placed there in these spiritual truths and facts of a coming king and a coming kingdom where there, there, there's going to be a rest and there's going to be a joy and there's going to be rewards and there's going to be comfort and all that. It's real. And people of God that are truly born again hang on to that by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so uh, when it talks about the, the being folded up like a garment, again, these scriptures are Psalm 102 verses 25 and 27 and Peter says in 2 Peter seeing that all, all these things are going to be dissolved and it's all going to perish and melt away with the fervent heat I think he's describing the same thing it literally means being changed from one form to another it does not mean annihilated like just totally out of existence and it's gone and proof it vanished the earth's going to be melted uh, when you study that in 2 Peter 3 about the elements with the fervent heat, that literally means like the molecules when you look it up. The building blocks of this brick floor or whatever are going to be so heated up, they're going to be changed. These molecules are going to be changed, okay? And it's going to be refined by fire, totally purged of sin, even creation, purged of sin and the effects of sin and pollution and animals eating animals and you know, just everything, it's all going to be purged from that. And it will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, wherein dwelleth righteousness. It's going to be not annihilated, but so refined that it's new. Totally new. Not new and improved, where you put slap a coat of paint on this house, but new. And that's what the Lord's going to do, and we're going to be part of that, and part of that kingdom. And so, I just wanted to, I'm going to just close with that, y'all. End of that chapter one, and uh, we'll pick up on chapter two next week.